Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and we have a special guest for you today, Robin Doolittle. Welcome, Robin. Hey, Erica. <laughs> and um, I, so this week is the first week of like Women's Month, and uh, it's so great that we're starting with your new investigative series, because I think it frames a lot of conversations that had to be had, are having, will have kind of thing. So you are a member of Globe and Mail's investigative team and a two-time winner of Canada's Missioner Award. <laughs> What's a Missioner Award, Robin? What's a Missioner Award? <laughs> Great question. All these like Canadian journalism um, awards uh, that no one knows we, they we are. We call it uh, industry back padding. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's like, it's always so ridiculous when don't read the rest of the bio, but um, the missioner is basically it's, it's the governor general gives it out one mm. time a year. It's, it's like public service journalism. It's something that has had a significant impact on, uh, on, on the public. Good. Exciting. I guess. Is that for your unfounded series? The one was for uh, unfounded, uh, which was an investigation into how police, handle or rather mishandle many thousands of sexual assault complaints each year that they were dismissing one in five on average as false or unfounded as it's called off the top that's that's not even counting the ones that they don't lay charges which is way higher than the false reporting rate um so that's what the first one was for and then the other one was for uh, when i was at the toronto star the the rob ford investigation now this is what i did not know about you (laughs) <laughs> is the Rob Ford investigation stuff. I'm like, really? And and then and then there was that whole Gawker blah blah blah. But Gawker the point drama. is, yes, because Gawker always had drama. Like <laughs> I swear that's why I, read I know it. I miss I miss Gawker for that. Yeah. Miss Gawker. <laughs> Can you imagine Gawker in this day and age or like during the like Trump years? Oh, oh my, my god. They would have been invaluable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So I mean uh, you know, you although wrote, probably would have not survived anyway. Continue. <laughs> yeah, you no, they wouldn't have. They yeah. wouldn't have. They like they would have gotten inevitable. trouble. They would have been. Yeah. I mean, they did end up. They what ended up happening to them killed them. Anyway, sorry, that's a yeah. whole other topic for yeah. another day. Yeah. So you you wrote a book on Rob Ford, Crazy Town. I thought it was the one that ended up being a movie that got optioned for a movie. I know but... everyone texts me like your movie's on. I'm like, not my movie. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> I I feel like, though, that's a good thing in disguise. I can't imagine it was a great movie, though. I just can't. Yeah, it was. um, Mm. It was. Did you see it? (laughs) No, I didn't. Um, I didn't see it. Mm. I feel like I just can't. You know, you have something, you're just in something for so long. Yeah. I just can't. uh, I I can't revisit the Rob Ford years. I just. (laughs) You're going to make me though, aren't you? But no, I, no. Yeah. we don't have time for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Unfounded, just, just a, a, a minute or two. And, you know, the 20 month investigation, which determined that one in five sexual assault cases in Canada is dismissed as baseless and unfounded. 
And um, so the national rate was 19.39%, mm-hmm. uh, nearly twice as high as it is for physical assault. Now, true unfounded cases which arise from malicious and mistaken reports are rare. Between 2% and 8% of complaints are false reports, according to research from North America, the UK, and Australia. So this is really important because um, the what that means is that the police are closing a disproportionate number of rape cases as unfounded meaning they're not investigating, meaning that people can go on to rape. And, you know, I don't believe that rape is a single, um, I don't believe that rapists only rape one person. I, I, it seems like more of a serial thing and a mindset. Anyway, um, point being that this is really important in the conversation about Me Too and about gender-based violence and all of that, because the what we hear is basically, you know, how dare you ruin this man's life with your false accusation? And false accusations are actually very rare. So, um, you know, it's always good to put a, a lot of, I guess, heft behind um, these sort of, of talking points in terms of investigations and data and all that. Well, what's really significant about unfounded cases, and I think will be relevant to our conversation today, as I expect Mm. we'll be talking a lot about data, but once a case is closed as unfounded, it's erased from public record, or it was up until this investigation. So that that's the other thing is these are the, you know, someone, let's say you have a a community, there's a hundred sexual assault complaints. Mm-hmm. and 20 are deemed unfounded, then only 80 are reported to Statistics Canada. There were, ah. only, there were only 80 complaints of sexual assault. And of that group, you know, 40% resulted in a charge. So it's yeah. obscuring our understanding. And the other significant thing about the police closing that many cases as unfounded is, as you mentioned, like all the research suggests the, the false reporting rate is lower or at the very least in line with the false reporting rate for every other crime, like insurance fraud, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's very low. Um, but for police to close a case as unfounded, they have to have evidence that it is false and baseless. So it's not just a matter of like, I don't think this happened. It's they have to have evidence of it. And that is just, it, it's like, when you, when you actually start digging into those cases, they, they, there was nowhere near that bar. So, right. But yeah. And, so that, so the, and it also means that women don't come forward. Right. You hear that. Like, why do you, what you put yourself through going through the, the, the judicial process, if you've been sexually assaulted is, is not a good experience, no matter the outcome let alone thinking that your case is that you're going to have to sit for an interview and have someone say you made it up. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny because Ottawa police were just on fifth estate with their, I mean, their, I'm, I'm guessing that that was an internal investigation. I didn't watch it, but, um, or haven't watched it yet. But, um, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, if that's the way that female police officers are being treated, then, you know, what are, 
what is the culture, how is the culture of that organization serving members of the public? And so, you know, I mean, I, I just think it's like two sides to the same coin, basically. There's a lot of, there's a lot of understanding with, with men in terms of what, what kind of horrors they unleash. And I'm like, (laughs) that's what I felt with this new series of yours. I'm like, men. Hmm. And (laughs) so tell us about your new power series, because this is really, (laughs) this hit home for me as one could imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that later too, because your, uh, your story is extremely relevant to this investigation, but, you know, I think the, the power gap series, which the globe is running now really is, is, is in a lot of ways, an extension of the unfounded series. It's, um, you know, I started thinking about the series back in 2018 um, as unfounded was still kind of going on, but I was preparing to take a maternity leave and trying to figure out what I was going to do on the other side of it. This was post me too, thinking a lot about, uh, you know, why is sexual harassment still such a problem in the workplace? Well, why Mm. is that surprising when women are treated as lesser than by all sorts of measures in the workplace? Mm -hmm. And, you know, every year Statistics Canada, not every year, but like every couple of years, I think Statistics Canada updates its gender wage gap stat. And I remember hearing it, you know, it's 87 cents for every dollar that a man makes. And um, I thought, for me, that number is always difficult because I think it's so easy to dismiss because it's an average hourly rate of all women compared with all men in the workforce. And when you hear people talk about it, they're like, yeah, but we're not, that's not taking into consideration different sectors that women work in compared to men or that, you know, women are on maternity leave. If, you know, every woman is taking huge amounts of maternity leave every year, apparently that's kind of always <laughs> something people blame on it. But I wanted to know, I mean, is there a way to actually just get at the actual heart of what I think a lot of women are wondering, which is, is the guy next to me doing the same job with the same experience getting paid more than me? Hint he is. (laughs) That's the question that this, that we wanted to, you know, the, the team and I sat down and we're like, okay, can we do that? And we were brainstorming. The problem, of course, is that salary data is secret. No one knows anything about what anybody makes. It's a huge taboo in this country to even talk about salaries. Um, And we were initially kind of like, maybe we can try to like get leaked documents or something from a big company. I don't know. But we eventually remembered that, of course, there is one huge segment of the population where their salaries and names and job titles are public, and that's the public service. And the public service um, isn't just core government, it's every entity that's owned or funded by government. So this is your, you know, typical provincial ministries and city halls, but also all the crown and public corporations that handle your arts funding, or sometimes your internet, your uh, fraud regulation, lottery and gaming, LCBO, transit, like these are the crown corporations as well as universities, hospitals, like all that stuff. So we collected records from 90,000 employees, married it with um, statistics on the gender probability of first names. 90% of names in Canada are 95% associated with a specific gender. Um, And so with that, we were able to really pinpoint exactly where women are in, in the public sector workforce. And this is meant to be um, uh, this was the, the start of the series, and this is a guidepost with which to explore 
the Canadian workforce and where women stand? The 87 cents on the dollar for every Mm -hmm. man makes. Can you break down that stat? I know usually when I was, you know, studying labor economics and stuff, it had to do with uh, an average hourly rate. So that includes, so you break down salary earners to an average hourly rate, for example. Um, And it's, it's basically a broad statistic. Did I yeah. just answer my question? You did. But no, uh, the, the, rea- the, the actual answer is I can't break it down because it's yeah. so broad. And that's exactly it. It's an hourly rate. So it's not actually looking at a woman's annual income compared to an, a men's annual income because women are much more likely to work part time and they're much more likely to work precarious work or in the mm. of, like they're, they're, they're more likely to make less over over the course of a year than a man for a variety of reasons. But Um, But yeah, I think that what you're talking about is exactly the challenge with that statistic and why it's so easy to dismiss it. And um, not that people, I think, dismiss it, but I think I think everyone knows it. Everyone complains about it, but it's hard. It's hard to do anything about it um, or at least hold people accountable to do something about it because it is so broad. So that's what we're really trying to do with the power gap series is get as specific as possible into certain places, um, you know, like we're dealing with law firms right now and then we're going to go to universities next and then Mm. medicine after that and nonprofits after that Mm. and specific sectors because when you get specific on places they i have found they're more willing to do stuff and respond what i'm realizing is that uh that stat also is the outcome of a lot of different um structural issues a lot of different processes, a lot of different. So for example, as we were talking about, women are more likely to work part-time and precarious work. And, um, and that goes into that statistic. And that's a structural issue that plays into the outcome of that statistic, rather than that statistic being, okay, everybody who works this much makes this much and, and, and it's, you know, um, separated by gender. So coming back to your power series. So this is, there's quite a bit in here. I've like five pages of notes. It's really, yeah, it's really extra. Yeah. I didn't, you know what I realized, I just forgot. I didn't give the Coles notes of what it found. What it found is unless you wanted to go, is that, if that's no, what go ahead. Yeah. I just like the bottom line is that, um, what we found was there was a small wage gap between men and women Mm -hmm. Um, and it got bigger the higher you went but the bigger stat that just stuck up to stuck out to us so much was there were just so many more men there were so many more men among the six-figure earners in general because I should mention like public sector salary records only cover high-income six-figure earners Mm -hmm. Um, so there was way more men in general there was way more men in the exec at the executive and leadership roles there were way more men at the top, but there were also way more men on the way to the top and in the mm-hmm. middle and in all sorts of man- management jobs. We did um, job title searches for common kind of management management titles like manager, director, senior manager, senior director, supervisor. The men outnumbered women by basically every single measure. And we're also paid more than, we're more likely to be paid more than women. So mm-hmm. that was what really stuck out for me is that it wasn't, I think we all know that, you know, there's not a lot of women in C-suites or in executive jobs, but 
what I think we're not necessarily focusing on is the fact that um, women aren't getting past middle management. Like they're mm-hmm. not at the top because they're not even at the middle. And one of the economists that I interviewed uh, for this, this piece um, attributes the wage gap largely to this phenomenon that this is the 87 cents is because the men are making much more money in high paying jobs than women. Yeah. Instead of, you know, the representation being equal, um, you know, between the, yes, the binary definition of the sexes and, um, and men are just paid more. It's just that men outnumber women in the higher up In positions of influence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so what I got from this is that um, one might ask, oh, well, why did you focus on, you know, the higher paying jobs? Mm -hmm. And you, my understanding, and this is where sort of like the nuance comes in, is that you were focusing on where, women sort of tapped out i don't want to say tapped out because it makes it sound like they they didn't want to go higher they stalled okay. out the they stalled out yeah they stalled out and so um yeah tapped out is bad yeah. uh, <laughs> um so, a lot of them did tap out because they'd had enough like that was a story i heard a lot that was a a common thing they're like i'm out yeah. i'm gonna yeah and also um, because of COVID, which we will get to a little yeah. bit later. Um, but it's that they stalled out. So who is actually getting to the top, right? Yeah. Who is actually um, getting to the point where they're they're shaping our lives through policy. They're shaping our lives through the decisions that they make to implement the policy. Um they are they are shaping the COVID response, and we know how well that's going. They are shaping who gets what pot of money and how important it might be. And, you know, they're deciding on their own policies that might be, um, I, I, that might be uh, discriminatory, for example, because the, the, it's not just that they're mostly men at the top. It's just one big club where they all think the same way and they all come from the same schools and they all come from the same, um, they have similar backgrounds. So even amongst the men at the top, there seems to be like one big, one club of men, especially that runs everything in this country. Yeah, and what we also found um, was, so the the data set that um, we're using is uh, we only, you weren't a measure, we weren't able to measure anything other than gender uh, because that's the only reliable indicator. Like there wasn't, we wanted to look at if we could divide this down by race as well, but first names or last names are not a reliable indicator of race. so we were only able to look at gender for the, the broad data set, but we did want to capture some elements. So we spent, yeah, I think something like two months, we phoned everyone, every woman who was in the top 1% of earners to mm. ask how they identified um, racially. And what we found was, you know, of the women who do make it to the top, they're almost, this will not shock anyone, they're almost entirely white. So I think something like only 3% of the top 1% of earners were women of color and we weren't even able to break it down lower than that because there were so few. 
Um, well, yeah, you when you wouldn't. talk about a monolith of people, like it is very much a monolith of people and uh, 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 of the same type of person. And these are the institutions that we're looking at, like that are deciding your daycare policies, building transit, designing the cities you live in. Um, they're they're uh, educating the next generation. They're deciding which issues are studied and how much funding gets put into those issues, deciding who gets to study those issues. Like this is very much the, these are these are very much the institutions that are shaping our country. Indeed, and and shaping the way our country even responds to things. <laughs> COVID. I just yeah. think COVID is one big disaster, and I think part of it the disaster is because there are too many men. <laughs> Honestly, well, but well, <laughs> it's too many men, but also a lack of I, I think a lack of experience of different experiences. Yeah, like uh, across the board, I think you hear that you have a certain type of person or academic or doctor that's missing as opposed to do you have representation from all the stakeholder groups and experts that are impacted by this that are seen like like that's I think that's what the power gap series is ultimately about is are the people that are making decisions reflective of the communities by every measure of of what of, of that they're serving and they're not. And, and you can't expect the best outcome when you're only working with a fraction of the talent pool. That's, that's ultimately what this is about. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all, there's this, um, what's this called? Oh my gosh. I think it's called Invisible Women. This book I read maybe like, a, like six months ago I was doing this research, but it's, it just, it, it talks about all the stats, uh, all the layers of data that are missing about women and how it impacts outcomes. For example, mm-hmm. women are much more likely to be injured in, um, car accidents than men. Yeah. And one of the reasons they think is because the crash test dummy up until recently was designed as a male body. Car safety feature- features are designed for men. And it's just like those little um, outcomes that you see that are, if you're only designing the world for one small segment of the population, you're, you're missing all the other people that, you're, that you need to protect. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, it could actually be a big thing too, because, you know, I know for heart disease and heart medication and so on, women were never studied. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of medical research (laughs) for women (laughs) aren't, aren't done on women or even by women. And so you get, outcomes that are suboptimal because the the because of a lack of representation a lack of representation is not just a rallying cry for the left wing or the woke or whatever people want to call it these days mm-hmm. it literally is a way representation is a step to making our world broader and more people involved and more people um, actually involved in the outcomes of these, um, of sometimes big things and sometimes little things. Transit policy is a good example because mm-hmm. transit policy is made for the, literally the nine to five working male. Yes, a hundred percent. And, um, you know, women are more likely to, like you said, have precarious work. They're more likely to need 
um, transfers because they're going different places because they are dropping the, their kids off at daycare. They're doing exactly. the shopping on the way home. Yes, there's they do all the this, emotional labor. Yeah. They take care of the older, their you know the older people in their lives and so on and so forth. And because women do most of the caregiving, they need to go different places. And also, that's when service goes down during the day. So it takes them longer because you have to wait every hour or half hour for a bus or a train or, or 15 minutes for a train or whatever. So the day gets stretched out and how that works in terms of hours of work is really interesting if we go back to that stat, which is average hours per work. And if most of that work is taken up by caregiving, I mean, women's ability to earn goes down, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or or you think about how, you know, transit policies, exactly what you said, the transfers. There's so many studies that show women are more likely to require additional transfers. So if you don't, if you have a system where you have to pay every time you get on and off, women are paying more for transit Mm -hmm. while their kids around. Um, Mm -hmm. You think of how transit systems are designed for lighting, like the reality is, you know, when you're outside and you're a woman, you're always aware of your surroundings. You're always aware of dark corners and unknowns. And that's where you think, I mean, like once I had children, I started seeing the city much differently. Like my, the subway stop that's closest to my house doesn't have an elevator. So I couldn't go up and down right. with my stroller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God, can you imagine? I, I like just my, I just constantly think of people who are in wheelchairs or, um, you know, aren't able to climb these huge flights of stairs. Like, how do they get out of this? We have to, I have to go, you know, a a 15 minute walk to the other subway station to get into their elevator. And that's just, you know, a very short period of in my life when I'm using a stroller, but you just have to think like, was it because someone, a decision maker was sitting at the table who wasn't thinking about strollers or wheelchairs or, you know, someone with a cane. So that's why you need the best people at the table and the best people are the people that have the most collective knowledge. Right. Exactly. Um, I, so I'm going to pull some stats here. Mm-hmm. Uh, women and men in executive pa- pa- power positions. So vice presidents, commissioners, associate deputy ministers, and executive directors, um, publicly owned corporations. So you basically broke it down, the public service down to publicly owned corporations, municipalities, universities, and provincial governments. Yeah, we focused Uh, on them because they had the cleanest, most comparable data across jurisdictions. And so in every section there, I mean, men outnumber women um, I think municipalities, for example, is 62% of men are in executive power positions compared to 38% of women at universities at 60-40, provincial governments 55-45, and publicly owned companies 49 to 41%. Um, the overall representation, I was just like, what? <laughs> I mean... You have, so here's the thing, and this is interesting. This is why when everybody's like, we need data. And I'm like, yeah, but you also need people to interpret data. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Um, So the overall representation of men versus women in publicly owned corporations is 76 
percent to 24 percent i thought that the overall represent the overall representation went up for men compared to women versus men and women in those power positions can you explain that like how (laughs) so in let me just i should pull up the the stat that you're looking at, just because I'm always leery of like misstating. But um, so we, we looked at these four different sectors, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and the publicly owned corporations are probably the most representative of what's happening outside of the public sector. So what's happening in regular private businesses, because um, crown corporations or public corporations are mirrored on private businesses. They are structured the same way. They recruit from the private sector. And what we found is that, yeah, men are dramatically outnumbering women in these roles. Now, keep in mind, again, we're talking about the six-figure earners. So it's not necessarily that women aren't working for these entities. It's that by the time you get to the six-figure mark, they're, they're gone. And I think you can infer that that is happening because when, so if you like on the globe's website, you can go and actually look up all these different places. I'm just looking at some now like Metrolinks, the Alberta mm-hmm. energy regulator, Ontario lottery and gaming, Ontario securities, Sask energy, et cetera. We broke down each workforce into 10 salary bands and mm-hmm. at the lower end of the salary band. So the ones that are closest to that hundred thousand dollar threshold, most places um, maybe I shouldn't say most with, with public sector because I haven't actually crunched that number, but like just visually scanning through these right now, it's pretty even at the lowest level. Yeah. It's as soon as you start to go up that you see women falling off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And that's where we ended up coming to this conclusion that women are not getting past middle management because you can really see it like a third of the way to the top and definitely by a halfway, they're gone. So, yeah. um, and yes, by the very highest level, um, the, the stat is even worse. Um, but, but what was interesting and we saw this trend replicated over and over again is at the public facing side of the company. So the ones that have their headshots on the, on the websites, there was more diversity. And that was true with public companies as well as universities. You really saw, so like the level before the top there, there would be a jump at the very end. And experts mm. that we talked to said that this is partly because they're aware of the optics and this is the public facing side of the company. Right. But they're not, and they will parachute somebody in rather than groom their own workforce, basically. That's well, what I mean, it seems they, like. The, I the mean, reality, when you look at the highest salary band, so at the very, the top 10% of earners, the mm-hmm. ratio is, is similar to the overall, like women are outnumbered, you know, four times, three times, but in that very select group of executives where we're talking about, you know, the six people at the table, the president and the vice presidents, there is usually like a pretty, like ha- split mix um, of executives. Now I will say, you know, I think with, with public companies, it's 62 men, 38 women percentage wise, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. mostly white women and white men also. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there is, you know, that one measure, theoretical measure of diversity, not, I guess not theoretical measure, but that one, the, there's, there's better gender diversity, but not racial diversity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, 
<laughs> Let's move on to these stats because this is really this gender. You're an economist, so this is really up, up your yeah, alley. All this. This is but... really. I'm like, ooh, look at this. Gender split among top leaders, um, municipalities. Like, holy crap! So this is CEOs, city managers, deputy ministers, and presidents. So municipalities, ninety three percent of top leaders at municipalities are men compared yeah, 90, to 7%. The people running women. major cities in Canada, 93% are men. Wow. So in other words, like, you know, they always say all politics is local. Your the way your trash, you know, is your garbage is picked up, your daycare options, your again, transportation and this taxes, taxes food, property food taxes, programs, housing yeah. programs. It's all through the yeah. Police. Police funding. <laughs> because um, you know, as we as we know, police get a large share of municipal tax revenue. And um, whereas the social services do not. And so funding for, um, you know, different women's organizations or um, even, like you said, food programs, housing is another one, a huge one in municipalities. Um, All of these things, all of these decisions are being made by men, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, universities is 76%. That's the next highest um, male to female re- um, representation ratio. And uh, u- universities, I always say universities are like awful, are run by awful people because they make the worst policy decisions that tend to endanger, I like, it's, it's, It's terrible. And it explains a lot of universities' responses to um, sexual violence on campus. Well, what was interesting about universities, so all of the, there's, I I can't, how many universities are there in our data set? I want to say there's something like 80. Maybe there's more than that, though. Um, Oh, yeah, no, there's, so there's, anyway, there's a lot. There's at least 80. And we sent all the universities months in advance, the findings of our investigation, gave them a chance to comment, told them what their stats were. Um, and, uh, and the president of the University of Ottawa um, gave this speech <laughs> to the board of governors that someone sent me where he's saying, like, he's completely misrepresenting what the numbers are. He's saying that everything, like the Globe series is false and that their numbers aren't that bad. And, um, and it was just really interesting because it like they're for the record, it's their own numbers. It's what they reported in the, to the sunshine list. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, I think underscored the defensiveness that you heard from universities. Like this was a common thing we found with universities. So we, we, um, we sliced and diced the data all sorts of different ways. Uh, we looked mm-hmm. at the top, we looked at salary bands, which at overall, because you need to look at it in different dimensions to fully understand it. But one of the ways that, like we talked about earlier was we looked at the very most senior executive. We want to know who are the most powerful people that are at that boardroom table mm-hmm. and universities numbers weren't great. Like women, I, I think it's, it's about a, a little over a third were women at those tables. 
And when we were sent universities questions, they, um, they were like, oh no, our executive, you need to include all of these people. And they wanted us to include something like 60 people sometimes on their mm-hmm. senior executive because the women are lower. The lower mm. that you go in an organization, the more women there are. So mm. I, I think especially for universities, like universities have, because they're universities, a moral and ethical obligation to be equitable. Yeah, to lead the equity charge for sure. Yeah, there, it's just, you know, supposedly institutions of enlightenment and higher learning and, and, and frankly, of, of, of science and research. So yeah. Mm. Um, that was what was also interesting looking at universities. Well, it had the worst record at the top, by the way. Universities had the biggest, the biggest drop off for women of any of the places we looked at. What efforts are being made to collect, to fundraise, and from whom? That's the other part, right? Because those oh my are gosh, chancellor the fundraising like stuff decisions. Is- fundraising yeah. stuff is huge. Like later on in the series, we're going to get into not for profits and. Yeah. The challenge of not-for-profits, not-for-profit, I don't want to like preempt our series, but it's like they're, it's a predominantly female dominated sector. It's very low paying, like women are, are making very little money and it's completely reliant on donations and who has the money to donate and who wants to, you know, have the headline of them making this big donation and mm-hmm. it's this system where um, it's really challenging to challenge that power uh, because you rely on on these donations, this money. And the uh, anyway, that it's it's a really uh, it's a really difficult area of the economy. It really is. It also relies on um, precarious labor and um, and labor like women of color providing a lot of labor, especially black and indigenous women. So it's very much um, uh, like you can see the bands of representation in term like racially and um, because most of the executive directors are white women. And, but the people who actually do the work, the front facing work, the even the data collecting, you think of all the students, you think of, you know, women who need flexibility in their work. So women with kids, single mothers, so on and so forth, um, are really doing the work. Well, so, and we talk- yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the series, you know, we, we wrote about uh, one of the stories in the series talked about how one of the reasons that uh, it seems to me that the inequities in the workplace continue is that even though there are laws preventing uh, discrimination of, of any sort in the workplace, they're almost impossible to enforce. And in fact, workplaces can actually make an economic argument that it's cheaper to break the law and just pay out paltry settlements or court fees than actually fix the problem. And uh, this is, you know, leading to people either having to go the human rights tribunal route, which is completely broken. It takes two to four years to even get a hearing. Settlements are small. You pay such a price for speaking up. Um, And the other option is to sign a settlement, which almost always includes an NDA. And speaking of not-for-profits and, you know, the, so we wrote about this woman, um, Shanaz uh, Gokul, and she was the CEO of Dying with Dignity and she's a brown woman. And she was, 
you know, recognized as an international expert in assisted dying. And while she was CEO, uh, she, I mean, she has a lawsuit alleging, alleging this now. Um, but while she was CEO, she had to, uh, she said she was paid um, less than her white female predecessor. While CEO hired two, it was, was asked to hire two employees, she alleges, who happened to be white uh, and pay them more than she was making. Yeah. While she was, CEO. I remember this story. Yeah. And I remember she, this in the press. Yeah. And she, um, she says that she was fired after, you know, pointing out the um, inequities, the yeah. inequities and, and like the clear uh, discrimination that she said yeah. she felt what she was feeling that seemed obvious to her. And she, you know, she's in the story. She's not been able to find work since after speaking out because the cost of being labeled like a troublemaker or a complainer, is yeah. so great. And that's the other thing that, that people are up against when they, if they want to try to take on these systems, um, that the, the deck really is stacked ag- against you. That's the real talk. Yeah, it really is. I would say now I'm going to take it a step further and think about the assisted dying um, bill right now that's being debated in parliament and think about how that's shaped. And I've heard sort of rumblings from um, from some of the groups that I've been in that um, that a lot of a lot of people of color are afraid that this is this is you know will end up being legislated eugenics in terms mm-hmm. of who is encouraged to get to exercise that right and who doesn't, for example. And so um, if these decisions are being lobbied, so your lobbyists are white and mostly male, but they're definitely white, um, you know, a place like Dying with Dignity and their and the racial makeup and the gender makeup of their organizations leads to, well, what are they fighting for? What are their policies? How are they fighting for it? Who are they leaving out? Which le- which is then magnified by the time you get to the legislative part. That's what I see. <laughs> uh, but, but that's, it, it, it's, it matters a hundred percent. Like yeah. who's at that table? And it matters for a variety of reasons, including public trust. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But- Cause I don't trust it. <laughs> this is just like, but, right. And- I don't trust anything. That's just all white. I just don't. <laughs> well, understandably, right? And I mean, yeah. I think that that's also like what I over and over again when we're talking about this series, we're trying to make the case that the status quo hurts everyone, mm-hmm. in- including cis white men. Yeah. Because, for well, I mean, for a variety of reasons, but one, you want the public to trust institutions. Right. And uh, if, there is no reason to trust an institution that that doesn't reflect you or your experience in any way, right? Like yeah. that's, just, that's just human nature. Why would I? Why would I do that? That that doesn't seem like that makes sense. And um, the current system, you know, is built on this traditional idea of leadership. Yes. And you know, there's research that shows. Um, Men uh, who uh, exhibit characteristics such as empathy are, um, are viewed as uh, um, inferior to, to men who don't, that they're paid less. Mm-hmm. There's, there's research that, that suggests that 
Uh, men in leadership who ask for help are viewed as less competent. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. There's research that shows that men are actually potentially paying a, a bigger price for taking time off to be with their children because they're breaking gender norms. Mm-hmm. Like, this doesn't help anybody. So no. um, I, I think I, I think that that's it's in everyone's interest to to get past this the status quo. I think, and the thing is, I remember looking this up because the Globe actually had published um, an, an op-ed by a by somebody who was talking about this. I was I was I was researching this for my um, what's her name the GG article that I wrote because yeah. I was like, well, women can reproduce these these systems of oppression yeah. as much as men can. And, you know, because our idea of leadership is based on domination and that idea is that idea of what leadership is, is like one of the reasons we have all these this toxicity in the workplace, you know, the bullying, the harassment, et cetera, et cetera, is based on this idea of dominating your staff and bend them to your will in a way. And they're various, like there, there's a whole, I would say, um, uh, like band or spectrum, sorry, of that. So it doesn't mean that everybody is like, you know, every leader is, um, is uh, like, you know, yelling at their staff all the time. Although I read, I read those instances in your piece and remembered my own Mm -hmm. um, experiences with that. And I remember at like, when I used to work at the department of finance, that was their leadership method was, was like domination, this really toxic masculinity um, that really crushed people. And this idea that, um, that, crushing people is just a byproduct of good leadership is basically what we have as models. And I just, I'm just tired of it. Like I just got, I'm like literally exhausted of it. I really am. A hundred percent. And you know, when you ask people, this experiment has been done to death, but when you ask Mm. people to draw a leader, they draw a, a type of, they draw men, they draw, you know, military leaders, like mm-hmm. the, the traits that are valued in a leader that if you ask people, um, they want, you know, aggression, confidence, um, that assertiveness and it, it at, like the system rewards and promotes those people, but also people, I think, lean into those characteristics because they, that's what, like whether they think that that's what they need to do, whether it's a conscious or an unconscious thing, like that's the, that's the situation with the current system is we're all taught this stuff from a really young age. Like, I don't know about you. I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I 100%, if I'm being honest with myself, can think of times when I've had bosses who do not, you know, exhibit those traditional characteristics. And I've been like, oh, I'm not, you know, like they don't seem confident enough to me. Um, I respect them less. Like like this stuff is so woven into every aspect of how we grow up that it takes a long time to unlearn it, right? And I think the idea of talking about this and talking about why, 
why do we have toxic workplaces? Like, why do we allow this stuff to happen? Um, it, it, because it, we reward them. We, we re- reward these people. These are the people we choose to move up. Exactly. And, and, but at some point it's got that, that cycle has to stop. And that's got to also be when people are promoted into those roles who don't exhibit those characteristics that, that people are willing to view different types of leaders. Right. Like, and I think that, so it's, um, yeah, it's a huge thing that's happening in the background of all of these stories. So women of color, um, oh, no, sorry. I have a point before then. Okay. So even in female, we were talking about female dominated workplaces where women outnumber men among six figure earners, even they struggle to rise. Only 24 yes. organizations out of 171 had women on their sunshine list. And I'm just like, what? Well, that's a big point because what? a lot of people, when our stats came out, said, oh, but are you just focusing on the companies that are male dominated? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, no, even in the ones where there are more women in the pipeline at every stage, by the time they get to the top, I think it's something, yeah, like in only in half of the organizations that had more women, only half of them have at least equal at the executive level. So, and these are places, by the way, that are like, pretty traditionally female oriented like one of those is like the all girls <laughs> brescia university <laughs> like oh West, my gosh like, like this this so like that's the kind of group that we're talking about they're like they're art schools they're teaching like th- this is the situation so women mm-hmm. struggle to rise at every at every type of of institution that we looked at wow that's what stood out for and me. And why because, is that? Like, that's when we have people, people say this isn't a problem. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't make logical sense. No, that's not even statistic. That doesn't even bear out in like random statistics. Yeah. How is that even a thing? Yeah. You know? Um, and then, so now I'll go to women of color. We're dramatically underrepresented, naturally, of a handful who did make it their average salary, sometimes skewed higher than white women. But you say because their numbers are so low, individuals could significantly swing percentages. This is where some data analysis goes because if you... Yeah, if you've got one woman of color out of 10 white women Mm -hmm. and that one woman of color happens to make more than the mean average of the white women. And we we saw this with, um, you know, for example, we just had a piece today that was looking at uh, law firms are coming out and saying that they are um, seven law, seven of the major law firms in Canada have said they're open to sharing wage gap data, which is really big because Canadian law firms have never agreed to do that, although it's been done in the US and the UK. And I was looking at a report in the UK where firms have this have voluntarily because they're forced to do this anyway, started disclosing additional layers of information, including the breakdown of the wage gap at based on ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, uh, and, and other markers. Um, but one thing I noticed was LGBTQ plus uh, mm. lawyers at this one law firm were making 10% more than their cis colleagues. And, but it's because there's like 3%, right? So that, right. That's, that's part of the story. When, you're, yeah. when it's so small, you can skew the numbers dramatically. Yeah, one, one in, an individual can definitely skew the numbers. And that's why um, sample, sam, 
sample stats are supposed to be um, as broad and as as multi <laughs> there there's supposed to be a lot of people in yeah, these yeah. in the sample yes. is basically what I'm saying. Why am I missing words today? Anyway, the coffee, get the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going if I I will in a second. This ah at the Globe and Mail, this is what I, I, I picked up on on this on this um this was in parentheses and I'm like ah, let me pick this up. <laughs> so at the Globe and Mail now we now I picked this up because media has gone through its, um, you know, a, a bit of a reckoning last yeah. summer with when we were all talking about the lack of diversity in newsrooms. And I said, I remember saying newsrooms aren't the only problem. It is, it's the publishers, it's the management, it's the producers and the executive producers, the people behind the scenes who make the decisions. So you can have somebody of color being the front facing, but the people with color are the one, or the, the, the people with power are the ones behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So the publisher and editor-in-chief are men, shocking, at the company executive level, which includes the editorial and business side. There are four women and four men below the publisher. None are people of color. Uh, on the masthead, the top editors below the editor-in-chief, the gender split is five men and five women. Everyone is white. At the management level, below the executives, the director and senior leadership, 52% are women, 21% identify as BIPOC. Now, this is really interesting, that 21%, because here's what happens with, with this data. Canada publishes, when they do publish data on race, it's the visible minority stat. Right. I hate that stat, because that stat is everybody together. So Black and Indigenous people get overrepresented, like, who are underrepresented get overrepresented in that stat because South Asian and Asian people kind of dr like drive up the representation and drive up the salary. Yeah. For example. And that's why I hate that stat. Also, I hate the, I, I hate the idea of calling a group of people minorities visible or not. It just has a value judgment attached to it. Right. And so, um, you know, if we talk about people of color, I'm sure that maybe two people at the most are black and maybe one, but I'm sure it's like none. And so, and zero are indigenous. I'm sure of it. Okay. And that's why that BIPOC stat, that people of color, um, visible minority stat statistic is skewed. And I, I, I know this just through looking at federal public data, mm -hmm. federal public service data, and that's what they do. And when they break it down, there are, there's data out there where they actually break it down, Black, Indigenous, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You could see the differences. And that's because through, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but through programs such as um, employment equity and equity groups and so on and so forth, South Asian and Asian people have been able to take advantage of that more than Black and Indigenous people. 
just something that, you know, I think needs to be pointed out because um, it really is, there really is a stark difference there. Well, so you're reading from in, in, in that first story, we, yeah. we broke down all the dif- these different entities and all of their stats. And in writing that story, we went to the globe and said, like, look, if we're examining everyone else's house, we should really talk about our own and the, yeah. the gaps within our, within, in our institution. Um, so we did include the paragraph there about some of the markers you're talking about better data and you are preaching to the choir a yeah. 100%. Um, I, I think we, Canada has a major data problem. When I was doing this research, I was calling all the leading experts and economists who study this stuff and nothing like this had ever been done before to look at the Canadian workforce in this way. Uh, the, um, I mean, it's, it's limited in that this is all that we can do, right? Like yeah. that's the reality. This is it. Most of these economists, oh, I know. Their, their primary <laughs> work, they're using American statistics because yeah. we don't even have them in Canada. And yeah. when you don't collect data, you, you can't fix the problem. So exactly what you're talking about in that stat, I, to be honest, I don't know what that stat is broken down to. I think institutions are collecting this information as, as uh, you know, under that, the BIPOC umbrella mm. and yes it it is it, you need to have to pull out um absolutely black and indigenous people i can tell you anecdotally walking around my newsroom mm-hmm. we have i think i can think of two indigenous journalists at the globe that and they've been there in the like only in the last two years i think yeah i can't think of someone before that i can think of two black journalists at the globe Mm-hmm. I think like it's the same type of thing, but I, you know, so it, it is worthwhile to, to break that out, not just at the globe, everywhere. Like we, we need to have better stats to study things. And if you don't have the stats, it is a way um, that I think places purposely, if you don't release your stat, then you can just continue to hide your problem. Right. Exactly. Like that, that's where this comes down to. So yeah, I'm on it. Like I, I can't tell you enough how frustrating it is in this country trying to do journalism or any research when we just have absolutely nothing. And the other thing I, I want to point out is um, we like I file FOIs all the time for statistics mm-hmm. and places just say no. And that's freedom so of no information. Freedom basically? of information requests. Okay. And they just say no or they'll give you like a $50,000 estimate like to try to collect it. Like there's really no recourse if we this is not a statistic but for example in a future story we're going to talk about um uh, a sexual harassment allegation against a a university professor and we filed an foi with the university for information about this uh a a, a broad foi about sexual harassment complaints Mm -hmm. and reports Mm -hmm. and the university completely denied it said we're not even entitled to redacted information general information about a sexual harassment complaint that doesn't happen in other developed countries like that that is that that is a uniquely canadian problem where we can't even investigate something as significant as a professor with with uh with sexual harassment complaints made against them yeah and universities are public institutions so we all pay for them so this is this to me is is you know, anecdotal evidence of a kind of um, 
there's a power entrenchment and um, people who think that they're, they don't owe an explanation, even though that they're publicly funded. Like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Exactly. I can't tell you how many times I'm on the phone, like fighting with FOI coordinators being like, you are a taxpayer funded entity. Yeah. No, this is, this is subject to, to access information, but this is a huge, it's a, it's a, like, I, I think it's an actual crisis. I know I'm not trying to like sound dramatic, but yeah, I, I can't tell you how little information you go to journalism conferences or watch, you know, watch online now journalism conferences in the States or in other countries. Yeah. And they talk about what they're able to get. And it's crazy. Like, for example, when I was doing unfounded, there are American journalists uh, who have investigated sexual assault complaints. You can get reports from the police about a se- someone else's sexual assault complaint. Mm-hmm. Now th- it's redacted, so it doesn't reveal their identity, but you can right. get like general information about a- in Canada, you can't get anything. They won't even confirm that they've done an investigation. They won't confirm that they go, let's go back to Rob Ford for a second. One of the mm-hmm. early stories I did on, on Rob Ford before all of the, you know, it kind of veered into alcohol and drugs was that there were frequent domestic disputes at his home. Ah. There was constant, uh, like very regularly, someone was calling 911 from that household and police cars were showing up at his door, like many times, um, um, like sometimes like multiple times a month. And uh, neighbors would say there's like, you know, five, six police cars outside there like regularly. And I started looking into it. They police would never confirm that they actually went to the mayor's house on domestic calls. And this is a person, the, the, the significance of this is not, it's not gossip, right? This is the man in charge of their budget. The police mm-hmm. are dealing with domestic calls from that right. home. That is a matter of significant public interest. And in Canada, they wouldn't even confirm that they'd ever been to the house. I filed an FOI report mm-hmm. for all 911 calls to that address in a year, and mm-hmm. they declined it. Like this hmm. is, it just makes the job of holding the, the power to account extremely limited in this country. Well, I'm glad we got there. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. No, but, no, uh, no, 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 because I like, you know, I always complain about, you know, not holding power to account because I really do think that this country is more like a, an, an oligarchy um, where you, like I said, you have a set, stubborn, set of people at the top who make all the rules and we're all supposed to just follow it like the hierarchy the colonialist hierarchy that we are right and we're not supposed to say anything and we're not supposed to talk about it and we're just supposed to accept and I'm just like that's really not my thing obviously um (laughs) as one as as everybody knows now but um I now would like to go into the middle part. Let's, let's look at this middle part. What is happening in the middle? So, for example, um, gender diversity doesn't work well when it's confined to the higher um, echelons. It has to be more on the middle management. And so what, in, a, in, a, in a great world, what does a functioning pipeline look like? So there's, there's research in Norway um, that 
got oh, good. Very, it has to I be like Norway because it, it has to be Norway because we don't have this stuff in Canada <laughs> um, where they got detailed uh, access to uh, private company um, records, uh, salary records. Mm. And they were able to track over a period of time how uh, this was just looking at women, but how women move through the workforce. And what they found was that if the echelon above you had a critical mass of women, you were more like if there were more women bosses above you, you were more likely to be promoted. Women did better when the echelon above them has more women. If there was just a few women, if there was an environment in which those women felt tokenized, that they're like the these only there's only one room, there's only room for one or, or two a few, yeah. or a few. Yeah, I'm saying like one metaphorically. Um, yeah, it's harder to to be promoted, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's. So I think that that says like there's a there's a couple reasons why I think looking at at power is so important. And one is this, that there is this research that suggests that the more women above you, and I think that there's no reason to think that this wouldn't apply to all measures of equity seeking groups as well. If there's more people above you, um, you're more likely to to rise up. And that, you know, that whole adage, you can't be what you can't see. Like I was listening to your podcast the other day when you had Selena on and Mm -hmm. her talking about walking through the halls and, you know, connecting with, with other, um, like with young black women and giving them her business card and being like, call me if you like that. There's no doubt that had, I'm sure huge impact on them and their, their careers and feeling like they have an ally that's going to help them. Right. That like, yeah. so th- that does matter. And the idea that, um, by, if you're just looking at the top, of course, people aren't making it to the top if they're not getting through the middle. So yeah. that's why we're really looking at this area. And, you know, the reasons why they're not rising through the middle, we've explored this in a variety of different, uh, different ways, but I think there's kind of two general areas. One is the sort of sociological, cultural barriers that, that what we were talking about earlier, those kind of traditional views of what a leader is, all those things that work against women um, the way that we're socialized to view leadership, children hurt women more than men, like all those things you've heard before. Mm-hmm. Then the other side of it is that when you do encounter those issues, there's really nothing you can do about it in a lot of mm-hmm. cases, because there is no effective way to enforce gender discrimination laws. And so mm-hmm. what you see are people just completely frustrated. Like, why are you going to work twice as hard as colleagues get constantly passed over there's no way it's human nature to just start internalizing that. Right. And just mm-hmm. think maybe I'm, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe they are better than me. Yeah. I mean, that's and- what happened to me. I started internalizing a lot of those messages that I wasn't good enough and that um, somehow I'm not getting promoted because there's something deficient yeah. and it's that feeling of deficiency that really shapes your sense of self-worth and so then depression sets in and and then we can get to mental health issues but then that starts working against you too right because Mm -hmm. we have stigma around mental health and like that was such a common that's was such a common problem that we saw is that people who are encountering these barriers in the workplace and they're trying to fight them and get through them and they're not getting anywhere and they're being made to feel and you know like crazy 
mm-hmm. there starts to be mental health consequences. And then now they're dealing with another layer of, of discrimination where now they're, they're thinking, oh, well, they're definitely not up to it now. Look, they're having an emotional breakdown over nothing. Like, so it, it is just this cycle, right? I'm going to pick up on that emotional breakdown thing. Cause literally my director, like, like said in a meeting that I had had this emotional breakdown and she like, I was literally just crying in her office. That's all it was, but she made it out to be. I cried at work last week. That's some real talk. Exactly. Like, like that's that, but she, but the way she framed it is that she framed it, that I had this, that I was emotionally unstable and then she weaponized it against me. And so um, it's in your file. That, that, that this is like textbook that then it's in your yeah. file and it's working against you yeah. every time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what she did. And I was horrified because the thing is, is that let's be honest, how many of us, I had to learn the language to fight this, right? I had right. to learn what was happening. I had to learn, like, it's not that you're racialized or you're a woman and sexism happens and racism happens and you're like that's racism it's like literally for years you don't even recognize it you don't it's so systemic it's so um it's so normalized that you really don't even recognize it for years and then like I just started learning the language of activism, the language of, of, of discrimination and, and racism and so on, the uh, tactics, you start talking to people and you're like, holy shit, there's something else going on here. And it's not sometimes in a way it's a relief. And, uh, but then you're like, oh, I have this other barrier now that's insurmountable. And that though, but those are the tactics that they use is that, you they put you in a position where you are you literally have to fight for your humanity every time you walk in and then they be you know when you show a little emotion then that's weaponized against you it's 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 really crazy it's really crazy to me and so yeah well I think Uh, Yeah, I think part of what you're talking about, too, which is just so common, is there's this perceived set of rules, right, and strategies that you have to do to get ahead. And women, uh, well, not just women, but women, people of color, and men are all told these are the rules. The problem is that the rules function differently for different people. So for example, I interviewed a woman, you know, women are constantly accused of not advocating for themselves. This is why you didn't get promoted. This is why you didn't get a raise because you didn't advocate for yourself. So this woman, she uh, gets offered this job as a, at a director position at a not-for-profit. She's offered a salary. She, she does, she, asked for a very modest increase in her starting salary. The, the starting salary increase that she asked for was still less than what the job postings range was, the max range. And they rescinded the offer. They rescinded it and said, you should look somewhere else that is more in line with your salary expectations. 
So this is someone, again, who's advocated for themselves and what happened, they lost the job. I interviewed multiple people who raised concerns, but why am I not getting promoted? What can I do like this? Like I want to do this. And they were fired after raising those concerns, like immediately. I interviewed a woman who pointed out that she was being paid less than her male colleagues who were similarly trained and at a lower level in the company with less seniority. And she was fired within days. Um, Like this is the thing that that there are rules, but um, the rules do not apply the same to everybody. Khadija last night on our expose, whatever you want to call it, um, was saying that her white colleague got praised for the same thing that she said, and she got reprimanded. And it works the same for women and men too. Like how many times have I been in a meeting or somebody else been in a meeting and I'm like, I literally just said exactly what you're saying and nobody wanted to listen to me or I was reprimanded and you were praised. Like you literally just got that from me two minutes ago. Our understanding, going back to the language and learning how to advocate for yourself and learning about that language um, and learning about racism and sexism and discrimination, our understanding of what that is has grown. So the instances are maybe, I'm guessing, maybe reported or maybe not reported, but they're identified more because our understanding of gender diversity has grown. Our understanding of racism and what it is and what it looks like has grown, of of transphobia, of homophobia, all of that has grown. And so the myriad of ways in which discrimination happens has grown because of that understanding. But the budgets of um, human rights commissions, their teeth, their ability to prosecute has not. And I think that's something really important that you've, yeah, it has, relatively speaking, you know. So, um, not, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say like, it it is, it's clearly measurable. They're, they're active, like governments. I mean, you highlighted Alberta, that's one example, but also in Ontario where governments are not filling adjudicator positions that used to, that are, that are on the books. Like there is their, their funding is going down while complaints are through the roof. So obviously more money needs to be put in the system and more, but it just seems to me that that this needs more teeth. Like the 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 role of hum- commissions, the adjudicators, etc. I'm just seeing tribunals. I'm not seeing any real prosecutorial powers. And you know, if it's cheaper for companies to just pay out paltry settlements, then why wouldn't they? My point right. is, is that the, the structure of accountability um, seems to be broken or it was never built up in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you talk about teeth. Their governments do all sorts of compliance ex- inspections. Like, are you adhering to environmental law or safety and standards law? Like they're proactively going out and checking but there, no one is going out and proactively checking if people are discriminating in the workforce. 
it's entirely a passive system. So it's up to the person who has been victimized to go hold their employer accountable. And, you know, you talk about teeth, I think money and sanctions are important. That's what's in the United States, the settlements are larger and often judgments in uh, part of the judgment is that the adjudicator or judge will order that entity to take steps to rectify the problem. And so two things are happening in Canada is there's these settlements and they're all, you know, dealt with non-disclosure agreements. Well, in Canada, they're called confidentiality clauses. So we never hear about them Um, or they go through the human rights tribunal process, which takes forever. The damages are really small. Um, Again, nothing really meaningful ever has to change and we never hear about them. So I think there's really two things. There's one is more resources for the human rights tribunal system or figure out a way to deal with these in in a better way that has teeth and also more transparency, transparency around complaints, transparency around data, like transparency around settlements. Um, we, you, you cannot fix, but you cannot see. And, and so the, these, these two things are working uh, against this in, in this country. COVID is hitting women uh, at multiple levels. So on one hand, women are more likely to work in sectors where there have been massive job losses, like they're working in the service industry um, or the care economy. Um, They're more likely to be precarious workers to start with. So those are the jobs that have gone. So they're getting whacked on that front. On the other side of things, women already bear the brunt of the the unpaid care work at home. So, um, you know, if, if when schools are closed and kids are at home doing homeschool, like it's more likely that the woman is having to take either actual time off of her work or like mental time off during the day to deal with her kids and isn't, you know, necessarily performing at the rate that she would have been before COVID. Um, now our companies, uh, understanding that that has to happen or are they punishing women for it? That's going to be the real, um, the real question. I interviewed a woman, she was a, a manager, uh, like a senior manager at a, at a very large bank. And she was, um, you know, watching her kids during the day and then making up the hours in the evenings or weekends. And her boss advised her to take an unpaid leave. Otherwise, the fact that she was distracted, I'm doing air quotes right now, uh, would show up on her performance review. And kind of what you and I were talking about earlier about, you know, you're going to get a, a, fo- a note in your file that you're having a mental health episode, like that stuff can follow you around forever. So she did take an unpaid leave because there was that implied threat. So for me, I think what we've seen tangibly is women's employment at one point in the pandemic hit a three decade low. So that that's obviously huge. The um, people are, women are coming back into the economy at a slower rate than men are joining it. Um, but the other thing is, I think so much of this stuff is going to be really hard to measure going forward because women were already penalized as, as being less serious about their jobs than men um, because of all these stereotypes and biases that we're all like ingrained with. So they were already facing this at work. And now there's this, you know, quote unquote excuse of, oh, look how during COVID they, they took their foot off the gas. Like, so are women going to get promoted in the next, when this is over, are they going to get raises? Uh, I would say probably not based on what's been happening up before COVID devastated the economy. And it's, it compounds because, um, Number one, uh, if you are in, if your husband makes more than you, let's say you're in a heterosexual 
relationship and -hmm. you're married or whatever, if your husband makes more than you, it's going to be your job that is sacrificed for the good of the, for the good of the family, because with this increased burden of childcare, like who's going to do the homeschooling, who's going to, what I'm saying is the opportunity cost of women losing their jobs in that kind of, or stepping away from work is less than the man doing it because the man makes more anyway. That is my point. For sure. And the, the, the manager that I spoke to at this bank um, says, you know, like my husband is like, is a great husband and he splits childcare with me. Uh, Like he's, he's, you know, pulling some of the, like he's pulling weight at home. However, if you're going to have a question of who's going to take time off at work, it's not going to be him because he makes a dollar 70 for every dollar that I make. And we rely on his salary. So all of these systemic inequities that have, and by the way, when they started dating, they had a similar education and they were making the same amount of money and fast forward a couple of years and he's blown away by her. So like these systemic inequities that, that put women in a precarious, a more precarious position than men um, then lead to the like further inequities, taking your foot off the gas. I met a guy once who, um, and he was chatting me up and he was, um, uh, I'll tell you why it's relevant. Uh, no, I like where this conversation is geared. Yeah. This is much more interesting. Yeah. And next thing you know, I realized that he didn't go to university and he was making the same as me and I have a master's. Okay. Jesus. So, yeah. Well, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. A master's in economics. Okay. So like, so this matters because he's like, you want to go out? And I was like, I can't, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't No. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I just, I can't look at you and not be angry. Like I just can't. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. So like, in other words, so what needs to be done then? What do we have to do? Uh, we need better data. We need yeah. better data. I don't know how to sc- scream it. Canadians, I know it's hard to get exercised about data, but we, we need better data. This is, you know, the power gap is a starting point. And the, my, my hope is that, that we, this can spur places to understand why we need better data. Because again, I said this already, but you cannot fix what you cannot see. So mm-hmm. That's a huge one. And then definitely we need to figure out a way to properly enforce our gender discrimination laws. We have, it has been illegal in Ontario to pay men and women doing the same work, different salaries because of their gender for 70 years. Mm-hmm. Like, but it, it's still, it, it, it's been illegal to uh, let gender impact promotion or, you know, pregnancy to impact promotion and firing for, for decades and decades, but it still happens. So we need mm-hmm. to figure out a way to enforce this. And I think also like, we're going to get into some of this, I think in future stories, but, but quotas do work in other countries. And like, I'm so glad you brought that up. Like that's, <laughs> um, that's something that has worked other places. And suddenly you can find, when you have quotas, suddenly you find, you find people, right? Yeah. And you know, it's funny to me where men are like, um, oh, well, or people are like, well, I don't want, I don't, I don't want quotas because then the meritocracy, I'm like, we don't have a meritocracy now. So that's a lie. Either, either, either we have a meritocracy and men are just better at thinking than women. 
Because literally that's what you're saying, that that men are smarter, they're better at their jobs. And I could tell you, again, look at this pandemic, they are not. Okay. And so, so it's either you're saying that and why are targeted measurements the, 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 the first thing people, oh, well, we need targeted, we need targeted goals. We need measurements. We need, we need, right. We need measurable goals except, yeah, for all other things, but except for people, except for representation. No, it's a cop-out. That's just bullshit. Like, Everywhere else, measurable targets, and you will hear this at every fucking leadership con- convention ever. You need measurable targets. Use your data. Use your data. You need measurable targets, except when it comes to equity. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we could talk about this forever. The <laughs> I know there, there's no there's there's there is no question. I, I think, you know, certainly in our law series, we talked about this, that uh, why are um, the, the reasons for pay disparities at, at the equity partnership level in law are, are complex. But one of the reasons is that men are more likely to get referrals than women because yeah. men are more likely to be in positions of power in institutions that mm-hmm. refer work to law firms, right? Like it is- uh. you know, it is, and also lawyers are more likely to form relationships with people that are like, like it is human nature to form relationships that are with people that are like you, that share your interests. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a conscious or unconscious thing, it just happens, right? So when one group of people are in power, they're more likely to build relationships with people who are like them, mm-hmm. right? So you have to disrupt that because it is just human. That is how people are. And I it think has that to be intentional. Just, it has yeah. to be intentional. You can't just kind of keep hoping for it, right? So, and the thing, I guess, maybe just in closing, because I know you want to wrap up, but I think the big thing, when I hear people that are afraid of this, uh, I'm like, have some confidence in yourself. Mm. All it means is that you have to be good, right? Like, ultimately, if you are really good, you will succeed. Like, that's the bottom line. If you are not really good, and we're going to succeed because of relationships you have or because whatever, like, then you, like, that's not, that's not really fair. Right. So just have some, have some confidence in yourself and you will do fine. And it's not like we're just going to, you know, shoot all the white men out of their jobs and that's, they're gone. That, that's not how that's going to work. It's going to be, if you're good, you, you're going to rise you want to have the rep, you want to have representation that reflects the population and 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 by every measure and like that it, it, this is not about uh excluding it's about including people that have been excluded for generations yeah and that's a big threat to a lot of people is including people who should have been included in the first exactly. place but never were yes well, thank you for coming to, that was abrupt, but anyway, thank no. you for coming. Well, I don't want you to be late because then next thing you know, like, I don't. Then you I get don't. like $5 fees every yeah, exactly. daycare thing. I mean, daycare, exactly. we the thing. Erica, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, Likewise. Long time, long time listener, first time guest. So yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so yeah. much for talking about this. Next time I come to Toronto. We have to have those we'll have um, breakfast again. Get yeah, the, yeah. The strawberry pancakes. I was thinking about those last and night. And Eugene Levy was sitting at the table <gasps> beside us. Was he really? You don't remember that? <gasps> yep. 
Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hanging with random, you. Random <laughs> random uh, Toronto diner sighting. My bitch is bad and bullshit.